We're talking about continuing to be evangelicals in the sense, not, not just to have a brand or a title, but to hold on to the euangelion, the good news, and to, to stay true to what the Bible says about what Jesus did on the cross. And I think the cross of Christ is central to our faith. I think the atonement is a central doctrine. And I want to just encourage our listeners and our viewers to continue to, to come back to God's word and to um, test every new idea with scripture. Welcome everybody and we're back here in the Third Space studio and we're back on the Shock Absorber podcast and speaking of back, Tim, you're back on the podcast. I'm back. It's great to have you back. It's it's good to be back. And how are you feeling? You've uh, recovered from COVID? Uh, Yeah, most of the symptoms are gone. Still got that bit of a lingering fatigue Mm. that a number of people have kind of mentioned. So yeah. I had that too. Yeah, but hopefully that passes eventually. We're glad you're all all fine. That's great. I'm very glad to to have you back. Cheers. And Stu, you're back as usual. I am back, yes. <laughs> Excellent. And how are you today? I'm oh, very well, thank you. Excellent. Well, uh, we're going to continue to discuss our season of Whatever Happened to Evangelism. Uh, episode 14 of this season. We're, there we're, you go. We're, we're really s- getting into it. Smashing we? them out. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. I love more, more content for everyone out there. Um, <laughs> we always like to start with a story or a cultural artifact and what we were actually going to... We were, we were kind of trying to find one, actually, for this, <laughs> for this episode, um, just the, the kind of things that we were talking about. And we eventually uh, landed on Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. Now, Tim, you said that you haven't even heard the song before. I, I don't believe I know this song <laughs> at all, but uh, it, it rang no bells as you were playing it earlier. Yes, well, it came out in 2009, so maybe you were very much into the uh, what's your, your punk scene? Uh, yeah, yeah, bit of, bit of punk, bit of hardcore. Too much too much punk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too much punk, not enough Miley Cyrus. Um, but uh, when we were actually uh, discussing it and having a look at the lyrics, uh, we all kind of came up with a few different things of what we our own interpretations of what we were actually seeing. So I thought it was worth uh, kind of getting both your guys' opinions on it and what you thought and what it, how it also relates to what we're going to talk about today. Why don't you go first, Stu? Yeah, I think... Uh, I don't uh, pretend to be a massive fan of Miley Cyrus (laughs) either, but um, my impression from watching on from afar is it seems to be in between her Disney phase and her bad girl phase. Like, it's not in either of those phases. I think that the the real rock and roll Miley Cyrus emerges a little bit later, but this is more the fun, poppy Miley Cyrus that comes out of Disney uh, era of earlier on. Um, My take on it was uh, she sings this song where it's a... It's part of a genre within uh, pop music and rock and roll of uh, a touring artist who's feeling a bit homesick. And the theme of the song is she's in LA, uh, LAX actually at the airport and she's sort of thinking of Nashville and she's trying to work out who she is and how she transitions into this new place. So she's got a bit of homesickness. There's quite a few uh, songs in um, musical history that kind of go down this genre. Mm. But um, the take on it seems to be that she feels a bit homesick. Uh, She says, my tummy's turning and I'm feeling kind of homesick too much pressure and I'm nervous that's when the taxi man turned on the radio and the Jay-Z song was on and so she puts her hands up and it's playing the song and then she goes to this refrain yeah it's party in the USA so I think that's sort of interesting that um, the song that she's familiar with when she's growing up in Nashville is playing on the radio and all of a sudden she feels uh, like she's back in the party mode and she also mentions a Britney song as well in the in her song so I think that's sort of the good place to start uh, helping the listeners to who also may or may not be familiar with this song mm. but this idea of partying in the USA is also a very deep and abiding theme within popular music in America um, I'm free to party um, you know we we talked about some of these themes earlier on in podcasts and you know a 
we were talking about the 90s a couple of episodes ago. I mean, the Beastie Boys saying we've got to fight for our right to party and uh, all that sort of stuff. And so, the Twisted yeah, Sister. And the Twisted Sister one that we were talking about. We're not going to take it. We're not going to take it. You can't stop me partying. Yep. So, <laughs> so there's this idea that a quintessential young American impulse is to party and so that's good, that's freedom. So, yeah, that's what the song seems to celebrate. Yeah, right. So the free, the kind of the freedom to party and do whatever, she, whatever she wants to do to kind of make yeah. herself feel better. Well, yeah. she feels at home all of a sudden. Yeah. She's in LA, LA, but she's got this song and she's partying. So she's, I don't know what, like, who's that chick rocking chick kicks? <laughs> she's, got, she's got to be from out of town. Uh, it's so hard without my girls. Oh man, I could sing this. I'll tell you. <laughs> I've got my hands up. They're playing my song. They know I'm gonna be okay. So yeah, I think that's the kind of. <laughs> Theme verse for the whole thing. Yeah. There you go. Well, thank you for your uh, your perspective on that. And go. Tim, you had a slightly different take on it. Or yeah. Where, well, what uh, you were thinking about it? I was just thinking as she was speaking, that party theme that goes through is very similar. If people go back to last season when we were talking about different artists and we talked about the chats, <laughs> and part of the um, having a party is you don't take anything very seriously. Mm. And so part of that party theme is that I can I can party because I don't take things very seriously. Um, and so everything's a, just a big party and a bit of a joke and things. But no, my the line that really stood out to me was, um, she says, it's so hard with my girls not around me, it's definitely not a Nashville party, um, but then goes on to sing, uh, I've got my hands up playing my song, I know I'm going to be okay, yeah, it's a party in the USA. What uh, my kind of take on it, my first thought was, um, here she is in LA uh, and she's feeling homesick for Nashville and she's in this place where she doesn't feel familiar but all of a sudden she's partying and you know it's it's party like it's the USA um what intrigued me I thought oh, I wonder if she's there's this idea that LA and California um is more USA than Nashville in a way like this is a USA party because she's in Nashville it's not sorry because she's in LA it's a USA party it's a very american party and this idea that um la and the um what we'll talk about it that the progressivism of la and um the entertainment culture that comes out of la is more in some ways quintessentially american than nashville is and so there's something about la which captures what it means to be an american and so it's a usa party because she's in la it's not like those nashville parties um which in in tennessee i mean i believe Nashville itself may be a little bit more um, progressive, but as a state, Tennessee is quite um, conservative. And so, yeah, it's a very different kind of cultures, perhaps. And so she's realising that being free in LA is very different and, and more American in some ways. Uh, so that was a take I took on it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if she means that at all, but, you know. <laughs> No, Postmodernism, death of the author. It's kind of cool that we kind of interpret it yeah. a little differently. Maybe yeah. it's a tip of the hat to the two Americas. So yeah. Nashville's the home of country and Western music. Yes, and yep. LA's the home of pop music and rock and roll. Mm. And you identified, yeah, Tennessee's a red state, so that's more Republican. And uh, California's more of a blue state, which is more Democrat. And so maybe there's this internal conflict being represented in the song between what is America? Is it the conservative mm. Nashville or is it the progressive uh California, which is kind of like where we're going to go today, looking at conservatism and progressive yeah, you know, different e tendencies. Well, exactly, and, and we've been tracing the lines of evangelicalism throughout the ages, <laughs> or the history of time um, since Christendom, and that made me, I, I was also thinking the same thing, Stu, like they talk about the concept of the flyover states and the two Americas, that it's it's representing that a little bit. Because America's becoming more plurified, isn't it, between mm -hmm. different states in right. that way. And they talk about the, the great sort, um, which is where 
uh, people would prefer to live near people who are like them. Uh, and so people will often move um, either suburbs or whole cities or whole states in order to be like people who are more like themselves, um, which actually what that does is that it, it furthers the gap um, because you're more likely to be living with people who are just like yourself. Um, and there's a whole lot of really interesting social and psychological studies about what that does to your own beliefs that it just continues to add rocket fuel to your Belief. So if you're already on the left and you keep hanging out with people on the left. In Portland, Oregon, for yeah, example. Mm-hmm. Then you you and all of those people actually become more radical left. And if you're on the more conservative right um, and you hang out with people on more conservative right together by being in amongst each other. Like you Dallas, Texas, somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. anywhere in the south, I suppose. Yeah, yeah so one of those yeah, more conservative southern states, you then yeah. might add rocket fuel to that and you become more conservative because you don't have this balancing voice. Like your next door neighbour is very unlikely to be of the different different persuasion where you can just have a chat over the fence and come to a more um, at least understanding of each other's mm-hmm. perspectives where you kind of lose that um, and so yeah you see this um, this great sort where people are the, the states are becoming more either more radically one or the other mm-hmm. um, and different counties and different cities are becoming more radically one or the other because people are moving around to be like people who are just like themselves yeah, yeah so the Florida uh, big issue between Florida and Disney like the state of Florida is more conservative and Disney companies from California. So the big pushback from Disney about some of the laws that were passed recently in Florida, then there's this big toe-to-toe between the government and the company over some of yeah. that. Or, But you, you see that in Sydney too, because like people living in Marrickville are going to probably have different views to people who live in the Southern Shire. So, you know, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, we're in the middle of an election year at the moment, got one week to go before the campaign finishes. And in the Sutherland Shire, in the, in the uh, seat of Cook, which is down at Cronulla in the southern end of the Shire, um, traditionally Scott Morrison gets about 72% of the vote. But then if you go into the inner cities uh, and, and uh, you see really different uh, breakdown with people probably moving to mm. different mm. locations based on their politics here too, yeah. When you were speaking about um, people moving around, I find it uh, interesting... Also, and my dad's lived in the US for three years or so, and uh, how the willingness to move to different cities as well. And I, I wonder if that comes from there's also the college idea of you, you move uh, to a, a different place to get your education, and then you're more willing to move all around the place. And I, that, that's quite different to what we do here in Australia, I'd say. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too in the US because you're getting swings in certain states too, like Virginia and New Jersey, based on some of the identitarian politics the Republicans are running on some of those issues and getting a lot of mileage about criticizing critical race theory and things like that and so mm. yeah there's it's almost like uh this uh when you look at america there's yeah it's very different i mean i think there's there's a, at the moment the big debate about roe versus wade and yeah. I, I think i read yesterday that there was 13 states with with legislation ready to go if roe versus wade gets overturned from the supreme court mm. so that's 13 states that are quite conservative but then there'd be you know other states that haven't even got any legislation even planned like new york or or uh, Portland, Oregon, you know, those sort of places, California. Yeah, mm. interesting. No, it's, it's interesting how, um, I mean, the US is going to be uh, quite, uh, we're going to keep looking at the USA a lot of the time um, during this and podcast. And it affects our evangelism, doesn't it? Because right. what we're going to talk about are those different lines of Christian responses to this kind of well, stuff. That was yeah. my next question, Stu. I was, <laughs> was going to say, um, <laughs> we, we keep looking at um, America being a very influential place. Um, but the thing that you, you brought up a few episodes ago was, 
we started almost with one strand of evangelicalism and then mm. we, it broke off into three. And then you started talking about how that continued to splinter again. Mm. So I was just wondering, why don't you give us a quick flyover of all those lines and then also where we're going to head today in terms of, and especially because that has happened a lot in the US, which is why we're focusing on it so much. Yeah, I suppose there's different interpretations and different commentators will have different views on some of these things. But what we've been traveling with in this podcast is, uh, Tim and I were saying before the podcast, actually, I thought Tim came up with this phrase and he thought I came up with it, but (laughs) this evangelical line that goes through history, the evangelical line. And um, we've traced back um, this impulse for preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel right back to uh, Jesus' statement uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where he says he's come to bring in the kingdom, repent and believe the good news. And so that is um, an archetypal uh, sermon that Jesus gave to uh, lay down his um, agenda of where he was going to go in his ministry. And um, when you look at uh, the Gospels, Jesus... um, is explaining his ministry. He's demonstrating his power, and there are, you know, John the book of Gospel of John has Jesus' signs to show that he's fully God and fully man. And then when he goes to the cross, he goes in our place so that he can die on the cross for our sin. So that if we repent and believe that he died on the cross for us and rose from the dead, then we can be forgiven of our sin. And so that good news is that we get the Holy Spirit uh, um, as we accept Christ, so that we might actually have the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in eternity and that same Holy Spirit Peter says in 1 Peter is sanctifying us to become more like Jesus so that we are actually growing and, and becoming a better person than we could be in our own right. So while we're on this earth we're still sinful but we're actually looking forward to a time when we'll be with um, God in heaven forever and we'll actually be uh, free of sin. So that beautiful good news is Uh, in in the Greek in the New Testament is euangelion, the good news. And so the good news people, Christians are good news people. We spread the good news. And the good news, the euangelion, is the word uh, that we get our modern word evangelism from. So we evangelize the good news. We share the good news. And people who evangelize and share the good news are sometimes referred to as evangelicals because they are people of the good news. So we've been trying to trace that through history in this uh, podcast because we're looking at whatever happened to evangelism and evangelism is the spreading of the good news. And what we're looking at as this series goes on is that um, after the early church and the early church fathers, then Christendom, period of Christendom, uh, takes place where the Catholic Church uh, sees a period of time where state and faith are, are linked and so we've talked in previous episodes how popes in rome have incredible power with their statecraft coming from rome at one point king john of england actually is uh, excommunicated by the pope and so that means the pope was saying you're not going to go to heaven and so king john kind of really crawls back to rome saying what do you want for me to be able to go to heaven again and the pope says i want england and not many people realise, but during the reign of King John, England was ruled by the Pope for a little while because King John abdicated his responsibility to the Pope so he could go to heaven. Mm. And so we looked at how uh, during the Middle Ages there was a lot of uh, conflict within the church but also a lot of um, desire for reform and then the Reformation comes and the Reformation uh, started by Martin Luther ends up sparking a whole new era of Christianity where the Roman Catholic Church continues on but also this new Protestant stream breaks off from the Catholic Church and the Protestants are claiming that the one of the reasons that 
Luther split off was because he was challenging the authority of the Pope. So he was saying that the Pope is an equal and the Church is an equal to the Word of God. The Word of God is our authority and that Word of God is the good news, the euangelion. So we've been arguing that the Protestants are and have an evangelical um, impulse and they continue the line of that evangelical line. And um, then we talk about the fact that uh, during the next uh, two or three hundred years, Protestantism splits off into different uh, mm. lines. And again, not to be too simplistic about it, we've tried to have a bit of a framework to help us all get our head around that. And it's, it's a lot more complicated than we've described, really. But, you know, you basically get this line of evangelicals who are continuing to preach the good news, believe the Bible is the word of God. Uh, but then as the rise of the Enlightenment and science comes along, there are Christians that start to head towards a more progressive sort of modernist tendency to uh, assimilate their faith with this new growing science. And so uh, we've talked about the rise of liberalism, particularly out of Germany, German Protestantism. Um, and then, uh, you know, Christians that are actually really interested in picking up some of the themes of philosophers like Kant and Hume and others, that they're, they're actually going to start inviting that into their belief system. And there are evangelicals who are challenging that, saying, no, no, we can't water down... Um, our faith and our faith still has um, the main authority. Now, some evangelicals just continue to preach the gospel in the midst of that, but some start what's called the fundamentalist movement that we looked at starting broadly around the late 1800s, early 1900s, where there was a group of evangelicals who were saying we need to really hang on to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, that Jesus is the Son of God, that is born of a virgin, that the Bible is the Word of God. And so these, these fundamentalists then decide that they're going to fight uh, this liberal tendency and also the progressive enlightenment tendencies in the broader culture politically. And so in 1928, we talked about the Scopes Monkey Trial being an archetypal moment where uh, some fundamentalists took uh, a science teacher to court saying that, evolution shouldn't be taught in schools but then there was a public defeat for the fundamentalists and that led to the emergence of the evangelical strain having prominence again within that tradition and the evangelicals uh, like Billy Graham, John Stott, J.I. Packer in the post-war environment in the second half of the 20th century rose to ascendancy but then as as we go through that era we see the fundamentalists coming back again in the 80s particularly with with the moral majority and the evangelical right and and Jerry Falwell and those kind of characters that we've already talked about. So there's this ebb and flow as this tradition goes on. But what we're going to see today is um, we're going to see the emergence of a more left-wing Christianity again that comes off evangelicalism, a progressive evangelicalism. And we're going to be looking at the roots of that today and maybe look at that more detail in future episodes. But as, as there are fundamentalists that it, we've talked about, a, a thinker called Marsden, uh, Marsden says that fundamentalists are angry evangelicals and they become politically active around issues like rock and roll music is, is, is full of bad lyrics or uh, we need to fight against um, you know, the 60s uh, movements of uh, environmentalism and anti-war and so there are Christians who are getting politically active around their uh, despair about where the direction of um, the society is going and, and so this ebbs and flows right through the midst of that we've been talking about the fact that there are groups of evangelicals that are continuing to preach the gospel and not see politics as the fundamental way to shape a country but to see the gospel of Jesus the good news euangelion as the way to shape the culture so where we come to today is after a decade of uh, 
influence of the iPhone and 9-11 and the new atheists, what's next? What happens to the fundamentalist movement, the evangelical movement, and this rise of this new progressive movement? Mm. I'm always really taken aback by the way you can synthesize so much information <laughs> in that way. So thank, thank you very much for that. Well, I mean, it's worth, um, I think we w- it's worth looking at progressive Christianity. That is one thing that you brought up. Um, we would, we, you would suggest that that's one of those lines that move off um, from the modernist liberal side. Is that what, what you would suggest? Yeah. So, so, so I think that there's a couple of things going on. I think the liberal modernist progressive movement within the church is still a major deal uh we're going to look at this in later episodes but at the moment while we're doing this podcast as a national synod for the anglican church in australia where they're debating different issues that are facing the anglican church and the big issue that they're debating this week is uh around what is marriage and so just in the last couple of days the national synod was voting on uh the issue of does the Anglican Church in Australia affirm the biblical teaching that ma- marriage is between a man and a woman? And so there's a great deal of debate between the conservatives and the progressives, mm-hmm. excuse me, in that synod. And while that motion passed through the House of Laity and the House of Clergy, it was the bishops that have voted against that going through. So, so this is a really relevant issue for people in Australia but right around the world because I think we are actually just experiencing the same kind of conversation that's happening around the world so there's that level to it but there's also an interesting level to this new progressive Christianity amongst our young people and that really affects our evangelism because a lot of our young people who are living in this world of ideas that we talked about Alan Terrain in the 1970s saying that the ideas that started to emerge from the 60s baby boomer generation of uh, the sexual revolution, uh, anti-war movement, environmentalism, these kind of ideas are going to really impact our society and they have done for the last 40, 50 years. And as a result, our young people are, who are attending evangelical churches, they are, they are really questioning a lot of the teaching that has been taught to them in their churches. And so as well as looking at liberalism and this, you know, I suppose this discussion between bishops and clergy and laity at synods i mean that that's a really high level conversation but i'm also really interested in the lower level conversation that's happening in our local churches at the grassroots and we talked last week about the impacts of 9-11 and the new atheist movement and the iphone and i think those three key things are really influential in this new progressive christianity we talked about the fact that the emerging church that started with generation x where people were starting to question the baby boomer constructs also led to uh, a deconstruction not only of what is church but also what is christianity and what is faith so for those that might not know what deconstruction is deconstruction is taking an idea and then rethinking it and repositioning it so it's a very postmodern concept where you take something that is known and kind of question it and look at it afresh and so that's what emerging church did with church structures they said do we need to gather together in mega churches in america like willow creek and like saddleback and have uh, seeker services for people who aren't christians and discipleship services for people who are christians do we need to have all the same culture tim called it bundling a couple of weeks ago the bundling of ideas that sometimes occurs in churches where people who are evangelical then also have all sorts of other associated uh, mainstream ideas like their politics is often influenced by 
right-wing agendas sometimes in some of these uh, megachurch contexts. The Saddleback was actually targeting people who had more conservative views often. So young people are questioning church and that's also led to young people actually starting to question their faith. And what we're going to see is that with the new atheist movement attacking Christianity as whether it's good or bad, atheists are not only saying there is no God, now they're also saying there is no God and even if there was a God, we think he'd be an ugly character to follow. Uh, one of the cruelest attacks on God from the new atheists was that there are some that have called God a cosmic child abuser because Jesus died on the cross. His father sent him to the cross and he died on the cross and the atonement is this bloody uh, embarrassing thing to atheists, new atheists. And interestingly, with deconstruction of the progressive Christianity, some of the younger Christians who are living in a world of now same-sex marriage is legal and now there's uh, lots of communication on trans rights, the LGBTI community. Uh, there's a lot of focus on climate change. There's a lot of focus on social justice and a bundling of a new set of ideas for this generation that are an ongoing expression from the 60s, really, I think. What's happening is some of the progressive Christianity uh, is almost having a conversation with that new atheism, trying to find a softer, more gentler Christianity that's trying to look, re-look at, deconstruct the atonement and say, is the atonement really about God needing a punishment for sin or is that a construct from human beings? And so progressive, progressive evangelicals are questioning some of those long-held beliefs that Protestants have had since the Reformation. And some of these progressive Christians are even challenging some of the uh, teachings of the Reformation and saying we need to continue to reform, but within this progressive uh, social justice direction uh, so i think that's a pretty broad summary of mm. progressive christianity but it comes out of that decade that we described last week yeah i mean and you spoke last week about the emerging church and yep. and uh, also the emergent church which led to those kind of um thinking i was just going to ask you tim what are your thoughts on uh progressive christianity and i also think we should maybe revisit that idea of bundling as well which i think that you um, came up a few episodes ago can you can you are you able to put those two together do you think yeah, uh, the bundling's not my idea. I'm sure I've heard it on a podcast somewhere. Um, but the shock absorber. <laughs> it was the shock absorber. Yeah, that's great. You should like and subscribe. Episode five. <laughs> uh, no, but this idea that um, the, you've bundled these ideas together, and so part of um, my understanding of what's happening with a lot, as you said, this deconstruction, as um, people, part of it is you know trying to pull apart that bundle. Um, but can lead to, therefore, pulling apart the faith because you're not sure where to stop. Um, so if you've been told that this, all of this is what Christianity is, um, including all of the political things that are bundled into that, and you start to pull all that apart, um, but you also... You, the, the problem with deconstruction um, is that there's no stopping point because you've given away all um, authority, all authority structures that are above you, um, and so when you've done that, you don't have a place to actually stop your deconstruction. So you, you keep on going and you can completely dismantle the faith um, and you can get to different, radically different ideas of who Jesus is, what God has done, the atonement, um, how we understand the Bible. And we saw a precursor to that in modernism when the modernist fundamentalist debate with the Scopes Monkey Trial that there were those who... Uh, said, oh, we've got all this new learning from um, Freud and, and Darwin and others, um, and so we're going to reinterpret, uh, deconstruct our understanding of faith 
of, of what the church has said doctrine is um, and try and merge it and blend it with the, the new insights from the new sciences and, um, and so you get that German liberalism and all of that sort of getting together. Um, and so what's it seems happening now with you know, the progressive Christianity, you've got the same similar kind of thing going on, kind of an echo of that from 100 years ago where you've got people who are uh, saying, well, we've been raised in evangelical or conservative churches. Um, we're seeing a massive shift politically and culturally um, in our society. And so what does it mean to deconstruct what we've understood Christianity to be um, and try and align with some of these new social movements that have come through? Uh, but again, that danger is that we're not sure, quite sure where to, to stop with that deconstruction. I don't know where the, the boundary is because if you... Um, if you don't have a strong view of authority and authority structures then you don't have someone who is helping shape and guide you and actually the the cultural impulse is if there is a governing structure and authority above you that's what you must deconstruct so you need to get rid of those authority structures um, so and that that could be churches it could be the academic institution um, it even down to the level of um, parental and family structures um, that we deconstruct all of those um, and so there's this, all of that is going on culturally as well. Um, the other thing we were talking about um, before we started recording was the, the bundling that happens on the right isn't just a right problem, it's also on the left. So you get bundled with all these ideas. So if I, um, for example, if someone wants to have uh, you know, climate change, they have a particular view on climate change, maybe it is man made like there is human contribution to it um, and maybe perhaps we should be looking for policies which help uh, curb human addition and human intervention in um, climate change uh, you also kind of get lumped with all the other things that are on that side of the political equation um, or the theological equation so uh, we've got bundling happens on both the left and the right uh, and i think what the what we've seen through the evangelical through line is trying to maybe avoid bundling, maybe that might be part of it, is tr to say, okay, but let's look at each of these issues independently, but also to sit under the authority of Scripture. And as we sit under the authority of Scripture and as we sit with the church and the authorities that the church has given us um, and we have this conversation, this is the shock absorber, right? We, we have the, the flexibility of the younger generation, but we've got the stability and the strength of the older generation and we actually um, give credence to both. And so... We don't want to deconstruct our the strength of the older generation and just say, well, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Um, we, we actually want to listen to those who have come before us, um, who both living in the church, but also previous generations as well. We want to be reading um, people who have long since passed away and what they had to say and how do they help us shape our conversation. Uh, and so that, I think, will help us in keep on thinking through that through line um, and being able to judge each of those other theological, cultural and political aspects that may be trying to be bundled onto either side of the left or the right spectrum and say, well, no, no, I can take each one of those individually and I can actually read them through the lens of scripture, read them uh, with my brothers and sisters in Christ in the church and together we can keep working out, okay, what is this through line? Not that we always have to be in the middle, <laughs> um, but it's it, trying to work out, okay, where do we, we sit with that? So we want to... Um, yeah, help 
the unbundling of both those things. And so, yes, we have spent the last number of weeks uh, talking about the bundling that happens on the right. Um, and part of that has been because the label of evangelical has been put into the right um, and is part of that bundling. So is, we've kind of focused on that. But as we move today and the next few episodes into thinking about the progressive left, um, being aware that it's the same things are happening. You get all this bundling together. So if I have a slightly left of centre or if I just have a not right view on a particular issue, um, it can be that I get lumped with all of those other things as well and I've got to work out, I think a wise Christian, a wise person is going to be trying to work out, okay, how do I understand each of those issues individually and think them through the authority of Scripture? Mm, yeah, because I think it's interesting because Marsden would say a fundamentalist is an angry evangelical and that, like you said, that has been an angry evangelical that's tended to take a right-wing political stance. But now we've got angry evangelicals who are taking left-wing stances. So okay. people who are, like, like you were saying, bundling all the issues of the left and conflating some left-wing political issues with, with uh, their faith too. I, I mean, it had expression uh, for me. I was in a conversation at church one time and I had someone challenge me that, that we had to be more political in church. And that meant for that person to be standing up for left-wing political issues and that person was quite angry and, it, and I, I remember thinking oh that's interesting that I haven't really come across that attitude until that particular conversation where I have been used to people being angry about right-wing political issues but not left-wing and I remember that, that something had changed around 2000s when that started to be a conversation I started to hear more regularly as well. So there's this there's this bundling of left-wing issues. So, you know, I think climate change is real, but that doesn't necessarily mean I will also agree with a whole heap of other issues that sometimes get bundled mm. with climate change. Or I might be, I, I you know, I've been, my friends laugh at me for posting lots of photos of native Australian animals <laughs> on my Facebook page. And the reason I do that is because I'm trying to raise awareness of extinction rates amongst um animals in Australia which is very high and I think we can do more to to save species in Australia and I think it's a good thing for Christians to be interested in those sorts of things but that doesn't mean that I I bundle all the environmental issues mm. that go with that necessarily uh, and also really importantly even though I do believe in those things I I still think that it's really important that we preach the gospel and that we encourage people to make a personal commitment to Christ and that people actually have an opportunity to respond and repent and turn to Christ. So I have a very traditional reformed evangelical view of, of the doctrines of the Reformation. And so even though I'm an environmentalist with regard to Australian native animals, I'm, I've got very conservative theological views. So I'm not a progressive Christian as that, mm. that case because I'm evangelical. And But yeah, there are those that are really bundling on the left and the right now. So we have fundamentalists, progressives and evangelicals. Mm. And I think that... Uh, one of the important things as well is to realise there that um, we've talked a lot about the American scene uh, and a lot of that, the, the bundling together of a lot of conservative theology and conservative politics uh, does seem to be uh, uniquely American in some ways and then it gets uh, transported to others. That's but in the UK, um, it, it's very different. You have a lot of people, you've got John Stotts um, and I mean, your J.I. Packers who are more of that you know, UK, British type of evangelical, very, very conservative theologically, um, but all over the spectrum in terms of some of those social, cultural and um, more political things that they don't, you don't have that really um, hard 
cultural right necessarily when you've got theological conservatism. And I think we even see that in Australia. Like we've, we're in a, you know, the Sydney Anglican Diocese is a very theologically conservative diocese. Um, but the leaders of our churches and the ministers in our churches um, would be a lot more wide ranging um, across the spectrum of right and left issues um, than you would if you're an American thinking, oh, conservative theological means you're also Good conservative point. in all of these matters. Um, and that just is, isn't the case in Australia. It's not the case in Britain. But we often, uh, because so much of the media we consume and uh, the noise that we hear um, is American, we can often think that what's happening in America is the same as what's happening here. And it's, it's not. Um, and so that's another thing just to, to realise that there isn't as strong a bundling um, and we talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago when we talked about um, the, the Port Arthur massacre and the way that our very conservative um, government with John Howard said, well, we're going to buy back guns and we're going to make gun rights really restrictive. Um, American watching on has no idea how that could possibly... How could a conservative government... Um, and how could Australians, um, you know, say that this is a, a good thing? But... Um, Generally speaking, there were a lot of the, the cultural. Generally, was like, oh, this is a good thing. Obviously, there are people who disagree and there are outliers, but um, most Australians go, yeah, okay, um, and and went along with that. Um, and I think that that is one just one little example of where we don't have that same kind of um, yeah bundling of ideas. I keep saying that word now; it's overused. <laughs> it's, and it's important for our evangelism, isn't it, Tim? Because there's two two parts of this. There's first of all, what what a fundamentalist, a progressive, and an evangelical are evangelizing can be slightly different. Mm. And so there's an apologetic from the progressive Christianity towards some of the themes that are brought up in new atheism, for example. So, oh, God isn't a cosmic child abuser, and actually, let's reform our theology and our doctrine around an apologetic towards that criticism. Whereas evangelicals are saying, well, of course, God's not a cosmic child abuser, and but they're not playing around with the doctrine of the atonement. And then there are fundamentalists that would probably have the same doctrinal beliefs as the evangelicals, but they're saying how do we uh, react politically to mm. to that and how do we mobilise with the ACL, for example, to, to stop some of the progressive, uh, what they would call woke issues emerging and the identity politics that are starting to emerge in the 2010s. So there's these three different kind of approaches, I think, which is really important. The second thing to, to note. So not only is it these different lines of uh, Protestantism have different focus or emphases in their evangelism, but also the other thing is that when I, as an evangelical, am sharing the gospel, the good news, the euangelion with someone who's not a Christian, I've got to be thinking to my, not got to be, but it's helpful for me to be thinking like Tim was just saying, are they hearing me as a fundamentalist? Mm. Or are they hearing me as a progressive? Or are they hearing me as an evangelical? And the evangelical voice is is actually not uh, thought... Uh, you know, within the broader culture, I think the broader culture is focusing more on this conservative-progressive debate. So coming back to the Synod, looking at the reporting in the newspapers of the National Synod on this issue of the definition of marriage uh, that's being debated and the response to that the newspapers are talking about that being a progressive and a conservative issue. And okay. I sometimes wonder if the newspapers are seeing it as just a two, two different opinions. It's either conservatives or, or progressives. Are they thinking fundamentalists and progressives? Well, I'm thinking that particularly Kanishka, the Sydney Archbishop, is presenting that issue as an evangelical. 
And so some of the nuance of an evangelical perspective might be getting lost in that mm. newspaper reporting. And so when we're sharing the faith with people, it's good for us to listen and talk to people and, and ask them, what do you think a Christian is? What do you think an evangelical is? Or you might not even use that word, but you know, you're listening for that to help be helpful. And one of the reasons we've tried to unpack all this stuff in the 14 episodes so far <laughs> is so that we can see that there's a lot of baggage that we carry as Christians, positive and negative, that people have certain impressions of what Christianity is mm. based on what they've heard about um, the Middle Ages, or what they've heard about the witch trials, what they've heard about with uh, the Crusades. Mm. And so those issues are still burning issues for many Australians today, even though they're a thousand years old almost sometimes. So having an awareness of that means that we can be helpful to people to understand that we want to help them to, to understand who Jesus is and, and sort of in some cases to strip back some of that noise so that they can get back to that Mark chapter 1, verse 15. That was a great conversation. Well done, guys. <laughs> really enjoyed that. I was just going to bring... Um, we talked about deconstructionism a little bit, and every time I hear that, I think of deconstructed food. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, like, de- <laughs> Deconstructed banana split, I think. Yeah, I've got, I got a just decon- put a banana and a bit of chocolate yeah, on the table. Yeah, i got a deconstructed hot chocolate once. What was that? Like, uh, I think the... <laughs> it was the milk, yeah, separate to the chocolate, yeah, and a cup like you're having yeah. right now, and yeah. then you would all just put it in together and you mix it up. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. just maybe just put it in the cup, man. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just on on the actual topic of uh, deconstructing deconstructing the Christian faith, mm. I was just wondering you brought up um, people looking at the atonement slightly differently. Mm. And that's a key a, a key tenet of the of the Christian faith. Why do you think that some progressive Christians feel like they need to um, change that? Is it because of the plurified culture that we're talking about? We, we've spoken about how co- the changes in culture speed up so much. Do we need to make it? What, what is it? A sense of thinking that they need to make it more palatable, or what? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think we could revisit it again in another podcast mm. in a bit more detail because we're just introducing this topic today. But the idea of the atonement is it's it's actually seen by some people as quite a violent thing. So if you look back to the Old Testament and the fact that the the uh, Mosaic law required sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and there was a day of atonement and there was the killing of an animal to take the punishment for the people for their sins. Uh, right back to the Passover when the people of Israel came out of Egypt and they killed a lamb and they painted the blood of the lamb on their doorpost and the angel of death went over the top of those houses mm. and spared them. So they, they were spared because that blood was on the doorframe uh, while all the firstborn of all the Egyptian houses were uh, firstborn males all uh, died that night. Uh, these kind of concepts can be quite confronting and People can rightly be trying to process what does that mean. Back when I was younger, I remember people saying, is the God of the Old Testament the same God of the New Testament? Because Jesus was all about peace and love, but yet you've got these stories of lambs being killed and blood painted on door frames. Like, well, there is the God is the same God, and it, the conversation used to be around understanding and helping people to understand a biblical theology to see that the whole bible is one big Mm. story and the cross is the the climax of that story when jesus actually dies in our place as the perfect sacrifice once and for all because right up until the time of jesus the people of uh, his time were still sacrificing every year on the day of atonement for their sins and the idea the beautiful idea is that we don't have to keep doing that anymore we can just trust in jesus and he is the perfect sacrifice hence john the baptist when jesus comes down to be baptized he declares he comes in in 
John chapter 1, here comes the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. You know, he's the Lamb of God. So Jesus is the Lamb whose blood will be what uh, cleanses us from sin, not the Lamb. You know, and that perfect sacrifice is once and for all. Now that's been celebrated through much of Christian history and Protestant and Catholic uh, history. Um, the, the Reformation really um, talked a lot about grace and talked about um, the fact that we're saved by grace and that we put our faith in Jesus. We don't have to do any good works to earn our salvation. And the focus was on how wonderful that um, gift was. Now, what I think is a lot more complicated than what I'm about to say, but in the 2000s what we've tried to show is that new atheists are starting to really look at things like that from a negative point of view, not from looking at grace and how wonderful God's grace is that he forgives us from sin, but the means of grace is so violent and they see that as so confronting and they look back at the Old Testament and see uh, you know, the people of Israel coming into the land of Canaan and, and fighting the people of Canaan. They called that genocide. They called the Holy War thing a really bad idea and God, uh, you know, again, a really unfair thing that people levelled at God was he was a genocidal maniac. People say really horrible things like that about God and so... You know, this, this honing in on some of these issues from the other aspect of it has caused the new atheists to really, uh, I think, cause many people to stumble and get start to think, yeah, well, that's not a very good message. It's not a good news. How can the death of Jesus on the cross be good news? That mm. seems so violent and aggressive. Now, I think some Christians from good impulse have gone, well, is that the only way to see the atonement? And so people coming out of the emerging church some have been really evangelical and some have been quite progressive with their doctrine so not only have they deconstructed church and started meeting with a rock and roll kind of style of church or you know a cafe church or whatever deconstructing the service of church but they've started deconstructing the ideas as well and the doctrines of the reformation so rob bell has started to promote more universalism, more, uh, more universalist gospel. He talks about love wins and he's he's talking about the fact, you know, don't. there was a famous video that came out in the 2000s of, of his that was attacking the idea of someone standing up on a street corner with a plate, you know, an old-fashioned suit on yelling at people saying you need to, con you need to, you need to repent. And he was calling him bullhorn guy. I think Americans call the... The, oh, big, the megaphone, the megaphone, a bullhorn, I think, mm -hmm. and so the you know the whole tone of it was, come on, bullhorn guy, no one's listening. You know, this is an old-fashioned message. We've got to love wins. We all just need to hear about love. And there was you know an alternative shots of these young hipster Christians who were all like, yeah, love wins. And I think the the vibe of that was, let's focus on the fact that God is love, and that you know, do people go to hell? Is there a hell? You know, they're deconstructing these doctrines. Uh, in view partly possibly of these new atheists but the, the the I think the the break has already been made generations before with liberal Christians who are questioning the authority of God's word some of these progressive Christians are questioning the authority of God's word or reinterpreting God's word looking for new explanations within it now in the late 90s there was a big debate around the new perspective which was launched by a guy called Sanders in the 1970s and he was trying to I think he had a bit of a tendency for saying, you know, could it be possible that Jews are kind of going to heaven as well? There's a little bit of a universalist twist there. Uh, do people become Christians through a personal confession of faith like Billy Graham was teaching in the 1950s? Or maybe do you just join the community and by joining the community you're starting to be... So these these writers like N.T. Wright was, a, was kind of broadly part of this uh, New Perspective movement but not as 
extremist Sanders, and many progressive Christians started to read Wright, who's an incredibly thoughtful and thought-provoking writer and very intelligent, and going further than I think he would in some mm. of his thoughts and going down those Rob Bell kind of tendencies. And all of a sudden you have an apologetic for the new atheists and you have this new uh, idea of a, a, a non-violent atonement emerging. So people are saying, well, what if the idea of the atonement wasn't about God demanding a sacrifice for sin? What if it was us? What if humans wanted the sacrifice? What if Jesus didn't die because God wanted him to die, but we killed him? And what if there isn't any hell, there is only heaven? Or what if there, if there is a hell, maybe people can still get out of hell and come into heaven? So there, there's a number of podcasts you can listen to, a lot of books you can read around this kind of progressive experiment and this kind of progressive thought, which is really starting to get a kick on because of the iPhone. So we've talked about the new atheists leading to this progressive uh, thing in some ways. The iPhone is given podcasting and social media an opportunity to spread these ideas quite broadly amongst a younger uh, cohort in churches but the other thing to point out too just one other thing which we could again come back to later if you want to joel but we talked about 9-11 last week and after 9-11 there was uh, a fear of uh, terrorism and extremism and in australia and other countries around the world but i might just talk about sydney there was this concern that young extremists were being recruited at school and so there was this idea that proselytizing religion causes extremism and that there was all these restrictions starting to be put around the idea of proselytizing young people to these extremist groups that could lead to terrorist attacks within domestic contexts like Sydney. And so particularly in Sydney and New South Wales government and the education department were really trying to think through what's the place of these religious groups that come into schools and proselytize uh, or evangelize. Now, interestingly, they started to put some more restrictions around proselytization, not just from Islamic proselytization that was directly connected to 9-11, uh, the Islamic proselytization of extremism. And I'd like to make a distinction there. I think there's Islamic proselytization and extremist proselytization, two different things. Mm. But from attempt to try and stop this extremism it was it, it seemed at the time that all religions were given these boundaries so so to speak and and even evangelical christians then signed up to anti-proselytizing codes in schools for example so uh, in the 90s we talked about this amazing almost a revival amongst young people in sydney not just in our church but across sydney where lots and lots of teenagers found hope in christ through listening to biblical teaching in scripture as people taught scripture and taught the bible in scripture or did lunchtime groups but now we've got uh through social media groups coming out saying that there's this bait and switch thing that christians are doing like chip lunch was actually considered to be a bait and switch technique that we were just doing chips so that the kids will come along and then we tell them about jesus but now it's even gone another level where the government are asking scripture union to sign up to anti-proselytizing codes and so our parachurch organisations involved with school scripture are signing up to anti-proselytising codes. Now, I think that's quite significant because not only did it restrict uh, evangelism of Christians, even questioning whether young teenage Christians could share their faith with their friends, there was even conversations around that. But what, what it does is it, it sort of positions evangelism, now calling it proselytisation, linking it with extremism. Right. And so the idea of evangelism is not only a new atheist, not only do the new atheists think evangelism is 
dangerous because it's spreading these dangerous ideas about a dangerous God. Now, because of 9-11, the extremism and proselytization is being linked to extremism. And then not only is it around uh, terrorist acts, but it's also around, uh, as the 2010s go on, there's this big debate about words themselves can be harmful and that hate speech becomes an issue and safe spaces in universities, which will become quite a prominent idea. And so also this idea of not speaking up against hate is also a form of violence as well. So words now are violence. Extremism is violence. Proselytization can be violence. So evangelism is not now just this annoying thing Christians do when they come up and interrupt my lunch on the library lawn at University of New South Wales and say, have you heard of Jesus? <laughs> it's now possibly seen as a dangerous thing. So I think coming right back to your question about progressives, some progressives are leaning into let's create a safe space, which is a, a bit more of a left-leaning Christianity, and they're angry at the fact that Christians might harm people by their words. So a progressive evangelism might be universalism. It might be teaching topics like non-violent atonement to strip it back from those violent aspects which might be seen as extremist. Tim, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, it was very comprehensive. Yeah, um, it was. That's, that's why I wanted to ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th I think one of the things is we, we talked a number of episodes ago, I think I said that um, part of the evangelical impulse when we were talking about the problems with the bundling on the right is that the evangelical impulse is to try and um, take a, strip back some of those cultural concerns and just really speak the gospel clearly. And we're trying to get things out of the way so that people can understand the gospel clearly. Uh, and I think um, a really positive reading of progressive Christianity is that that's essentially what they're seeking to do, is to remove all the uh, things that will get in the way of people hearing about the love of Jesus. Mm. So there's a great emphasis on the the love of Jesus, that Jesus God is love, um, his loving um, uh, disposition towards all those he met. Um, but again, you get this uh, deconstruction of other bits of the Bible uh, where also there. Um, and so when you try and say, oh, we're going to get rid of the violence of the atonement so that people can see the love of Jesus really clearly. We're going to remove all of the aspects of sacrifice so that people can see Jesus clearly, the love of Jesus clearly. We're going to um, remove uh, any of these, the, the more difficult aspects of atonement so that we can see the love of Jesus more clearly. So there's one sense that there's that impulse of we want people to see how beautiful Jesus is, um, but because of the, the shaping of the the gospel message according to some of these um, more progressive cultural um, and political ideas is that you do lose things that are also actually true in the scriptures. And so you end up with perhaps a universalism instead of uh, what the Bible clearly says, that there are those who are separated, um, the sheep and the goats, that there are those who are different. Um, and so eternity is not for everyone. Um, you strip away the idea of sacrifice and rather than wrestling with it and say, well, no, no, this is all inspired words of God. We need to wrestle with it. Um, my cultural disposition might be, oh, that's it. Oh, I don't know what to do with that. Um, but it, if, if I have the Bible as an authority, then I, I must wrestle with it um, rather than just discard it. Um, same with some of the aspect, the tricky aspects of the Old Testament. You see some of the violence enacted 
by the Israelites on the Canaanites uh, and trying to reinterpret that. So uh, another good example of this is a guy called Greg Boyd um, who has tried to think through, okay, maybe what's going on there is God didn't actually command the Israelites to do these things. Um, the Israelites wanted to do it uh, and they wrote the Old Testament scriptures in such a way that, that it looks like they've got God's guidance on it, but that's not actually what was God doesn't gen, God doesn't want that to happen, um, but they're using God as an excuse to get there, and so he's kind of got this reinterpretation of some of those violent aspects of the Old Testament. Um, and again, I think there's again the, the most positive, generous reading of that is he's trying to see help people see the love of Jesus, um, but it's I would say uh, that it's disingenuous to what the scriptures actually say the scriptures well, it's against the scriptures isn't it's against it? the yeah, scriptures it is, yeah it is 100 um and so an evangelical who is saying uh, i want to preach the gospel clearly but i sit under the authority of scripture and what the scriptures do say we need to wrestle with those things we need to say yeah there, there is some offense here um particularly as Stuart said in our particular time uh in this particular cultural moment we're at a place where violent or any kind of violence uh, whether it be physical or verbal, um, is uh, completely wrong all the time. Uh, and so we say, okay, well, if that's if that's our cultural moment, but we do have to wrestle with this, and we're all soaked in it, um, but we need to say, well, this is the authoritative word of God. How do I um, help people to see uh, God clearly through this and the gospel clearly in this without actually rewriting the Bible, without actually putting on to God... Um, motivations that aren't there or trying to reinterpret the motivations of those who wrote the bible and actually sitting under the authority of scripture because if we sit under the authority of scripture we don't have permission to do that um we always are having to rethink it every generation as we've talked about in other previous episodes every generation thinks about the ways in which we communicate the good news but we're not at liberty to change the good news and so that would be the evangelical line so we sit under the authority of God's word and we've got to be careful not to syncretize the Bible with our cultural moment, that we're trying to make it relevant to our cultural moment, change the message to make the message relevant to the cultural moment. Uh, the, the confidence we have in scripture is that if we read the Bible as one story, we know that God is love and God is love and he doesn't turn a blind eye to injustice and that evil and sin is punished. And the beautiful message of the gospel is that Jesus can take the punishment for our sin for us. And if we don't uh, accept Christ, then then the sin we have committed and the injustice that we've enacted will be punished. Uh, Jesus said himself, uh, don't, you know, it'd be better for someone who hurts one of these little ones to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the river than when they uh, face judgment. So... The Christian church has taught for generations and generations that there is a judgment day and there is a, a moment of judgment and it's not about whether right-wing people or left-wing people agree with it. It's actually about God and what he thinks is the the right way forward and he's, he's given us in the word of God uh, a very clear statement that he has dealt with evil and sin on the cross. And so... We need to be humble enough to accept that. We can't create a God of our own choosing. And there are there are teachings in the Bible that I find really easy to sit under and others that, as Tim said, that I need to to be humble and just accept God's authority uh, in that. So I think, I think the evangelical idea of sitting under the authority of God's word is a really 
um, awesome line throughout Christian history. Totally. And the wrestling with it is always something that we, we should be doing. I, I was trying to... And wrestle in a way of trying to understand it, yeah. not wrestle with it to... Um, almost fit my perspective. Yeah, I'm not trying to get God to fit into what I think. It's almost like I've got to work mm. out what does God think and how do I... And how do I obey him? Is there not yeah. a verse in the Bible about that? I was trying to find it, but I couldn't find it. I can't, I can't think. I'm sure there is a verse somewhere, and I, I feel like it's one of Paul's writings, where it says you need to continually wrestle with the faith. But I'm, I could be wrong, so uh, I don't know if you can think of it. But I can't I was, think of what you're thinking of. I was trying to search it, and I couldn't <laughs> find it. Um, yeah, no, I can't think of what uh, you're thinking of. But I, all of this requires that there is, there is a God and a reality that is outside of myself. Um, and so a, an evangelical reading of scripture um, ha- must be getting its authority from outside of oneself. And again, this is uh, deeply countercultural to our particular moment where authentic truth is what I feel and the things that I um, feel inside of myself, that is what is most real. Um, and so there's this um, inward turn. A number of commentators have talked about the, the psychological turn inwards. Um, and so what I feel and think about myself is what is most real. Um, and the evangelical uh, who sits under the authority of God must say, no, no, um, regardless of what you think and what you feel, there is an external authority. There is a God who sits outside of not just me, but outside of the whole of the cosmos. Um, he has revealed himself through this word. Um, and so my responsibility as a disciple of Jesus is to continue to conform myself um, and have um, the, the transformation of my mind according to the spirit. Mm. Um, and actually, it's not, the, it's not me transforming myself. It's me. Uh, it's, it's the spirit working in me that I work alongside um, in order to continue to shape my understanding and my preferences and what this means for wherever you are on the political spectrum. Um, we, ha- we hold all of our political and cultural views in open hands and with loose hands, recognising that God will probably challenge me or one or more of those uh, along the way. And so it, that's we want to be able to say, well, you know, I have this particular view on X issue, um, but I'm going to continue to bring that issue to Christ and I'll continue to sit with that issue under the word of God and let that shape. And not that the Bible has a uh, proof text for every particular issue. There's no proof text in the Bible that I can use as a sledgehammer against you know, nuclear war or climate change or whatever the particular issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a biblical way of thinking and there is a God who is outside of cosmos who I'm continuing to seek to align myself with. Um, and so, again, I think that that helps us to, as evangelicals, to disassociate from having to be on either side of the spectrum, to have to be, to either label myself one or the other, but just to say, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus um, and each issue I'm going to just continue to bring under the word authority, uh, the authority of God and in conversation with the church. Um, God gives us brothers and sisters for a reason. Um, he gives us the historic church for a reason. And so we continue to see all of our views through that line. The idea of wrestle is really interesting because it reminded me of when we talked about Billy Graham and in his generation, the big wrestle was, is the Bible the word of God and is it authoritative? And he wrestled with that idea and, and decided to uh, humble himself and say, yes, this is the word of God and I'm going to believe this. Um, interesting in scripture, when you were talking about wrestling, the wrestling's not so, uh, I mean, step one back, uh, I'll step one, step back, um, rather, the 
the, I think the impulse in deconstructionism is to wrestle with the word of God and is the word of God right and do I have to see it in the traditional explanation of it? Uh, and I think then the wrestling can then be against conservative Christians who are holding to a conservative doctrinal position and Sometimes I see wrestling between fundamentalist Christians and progressive Christians who are arguing with each other over politics and things like that. Um, some debates I've seen emerge in churches are, you know, how many plastic straws we've saved by not having plastic straws to help save the planet. And some I've heard of a church that put a sign on the wall that said, we've saved, you know, 10,000 straws this year or something like that. And my immediate discomfort with that is, it's not a bad thing to not use plastic straws, but we're about saving souls, not about saving straws. And if we're going to put up a sign in a church, I think it would be far more clear as an evangelical. I feel more comfortable talking about um, let's continue to encourage people to share the gospel. And but you could just make that decision. You could just decide not to use plastic straws yeah. at church but yeah. not have to publicise it. And this yeah. is the other thing is that yeah. our cultural moment is you must publicise and politicise everything as well. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, you like like you talked about your native animals. Like the, you could really politicise that and mm. make it a big stand. Oh, because I'm a Christian, therefore I have this political stand. Preach about it and all that. Yeah, those kind mm. of things. Where it's the evangelical impulse is, yeah, you know, we, we have these concerns. You know, yeah, if we can limit plastic straws, great. If we can save native animals, that's really good. It's a good part of looking after God's creation, being good stewards of the creation God has given. But I don't need to politicise it um, in in the same way. I don't need to link those two things together. Yeah, it's interesting. The the wrestling in scripture that I can think of is three things really quickly. In Genesis thirty-two twenty-four, Jacob wrestled with the angel, mm. and then the angel touched his socket of his uh, thigh and and dislocated his thigh. In in verse twenty-five, uh, that's an interesting idea about when we wrestle with God, God is is going to prevail, and so yes. we need to be humbled in that. The other thought I had was two other things: is that the real wrestling we should be doing is not wrestling with difficult aspects of scripture compared to my cultural moment necessarily, but wrestling with my own sin. And so Galatians 5, Paul says that the fight we have to fight is the fight um, against our sinful nature, that our spiritual nature fights against our sinful nature and it's a spiritual conflict between uh, those two things and that we need to continue to fight the good fight and continue to have victory in Christ over sin. And the third aspect of that is uh, the real fight that we have as Christians is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, conservative versus progressive, but against rulers, against powers, against the forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of weakness in the heavenly realm. So um, we're, we're not fighting um, Trump or Hillary Clinton. Our fight is with uh, preaching the gospel so that we might actually shed light on darkness. And so as we preach the gospel, we're fighting against the darkness. So coming back to that whole marriage debate, I think the interesting thing in Synod, which we might come back to another week, is Kanishka, the Archbishop of Sydney, is actually preaching the gospel as he says that we need to believe the Bible's definition of what marriage is, not wrestle with that in the sense that is it right or wrong, but accept it as the, the trying to understand it. So the, if the wrestle is to understand scripture, then that's a really good thing. But if the wrestle is, you know, like Jacob tried to wrestle with God, are you right or am I right? Uh, there, there is a, a hubris and a, a um, you know, an arrogance of the human being that built the Tower of Babel where the 
the people who built the Tower of Babel wanted to be like God. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God when they ate the fruit. And there's a tendency for us as human beings to say, well, God, you've said this, but do I think it's right? And I think that's found its moment in our generation, in the new atheist moment, which is saying, well, God's wrong. You know, he's what, you know, um, I, I can't remember which uh, comedian it was, but it'll probably come to me afterwards. But he was on one program once I saw talking about some beetle that crawls into your... Oh, it's Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry. Do you know yeah. much about that beetle thing that he talked about where he said, how dare God make a beetle that goes into baby's ears or something yeah i yeah i showed this clip recently to my class actually um and, and it's quite confronting but uh the interviewer asked Stephen fry if you were to turn up at the pearly gates um uh just say you're wrong about your atheism that actually there is a god you turn up to the pearly gates what would you say uh and his response is basically i would say how dare you how dare you make a world where there's childhood cancer and where there's this right. uh you know worm or beetle that you know lives mm. its entire life in the inside of a child's eye and worms his way out and so basically he's again is just really angry um and he sees the injustice of the world and particularly the injustice of the created world the things that can go wrong in the created world and say well therefore that that proves there is no god and if there is god um then he's clearly a malevolent vindictive like the new atheist yeah. yeah so i can't mean, i'm not quoting him exactly but that's the that's the tone Stephen fry so yeah, yeah Stephen fry is definitely carrying that um daniel dennett and um Sam Harris kind of line, um, the you know, God is not great, you know, those kinds of ideas of the new, the four horsemen of the new atheism you guys talked about last week. Uh, so there's there's definitely that line throughout um, his his approach. Yeah, so I think with the deconstruction approach, I do see with some progressive Christians that I've chatted with that that sensibility of Stephen Fry. There's almost like a stance of, well, you know, how is that not bad? And, and I think they, they, we just have to be really careful in that moment. So the, I think the wrestling that we talked about there is actually a really interesting mm. theme, actually, of progressive Christianity. That was really good. And you actually um, did the thing we're actually saying is that, oh, I'm sure there's a Bible verse, and then you actually found the Bible verses. <laughs> and actually, we sat under the authority of God. So yeah, that, that, that's that was good. really that's cool. Um, you, you just, uh, in passing, mentioned Trump there. And I thought it would be um, worth looking at the kind of the roots of the, the, the Trumpism mm -hmm. movement, which is the rise of the Tea Party. And um, I had a I had a look into this, and it was it's quite interesting how the Tea Party formed. So it came straight after the back of the global financial crisis, another cultural shock that we haven't really mentioned much. No, but we I haven't, have we? Two thousand seven is that right? Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Yeah. So that was a, a very big moment, obviously in America. We returned to the U.S. talking about this, but it actually the part the the movement took off when a CNBC, uh, which is a, a cable news channel over in America, the, a business editor on a show called Squawk Box, and his name was Rick Santelli, he just let's rip with this diatribe on President Obama's plan to allow homeowners to avoid foreclosures by refinancing their mortgages. And so he accused the government of promoting bad behaviour. And But he, like it's quite an interesting contrast of saying that, but then he's also speaking from the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So even after the global financial crisis, there's a guy on CNBC which is very much focused on stock exchange, stock exchanges and um, uh, trading and those kind of things. He's speaking from the floor of there in Chicago um, saying that this is wrong and that the bond traders in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange should create a tea party and throw all the derivatives of the mortgages that, that Obama was talking about into the Chicago River. And so he's harking back to the Boston Tea Party, which is back in when American colonists uh, they protested over the taxation of tea ports. So they threw an entire shipment of tea into, into the Boston Harbour because they weren't happy that the British were taxing them differently to the British East India Company. 
Anyway, so he's recalling those ideas of protest and revolution. So his rant went viral. And so within a year, a thousand Tea Party committees sprung up all over the US and they favoured issues like reducing the national debt, lowering taxes, uh, ending supposedly wasteful government spending or how they termed it. Um, but it was, again, coming back to that thing of the contrast between the two. And this also, I think, recalls um, uh, the Miley Cyrus song as well, is that it was a grassroots movement, but it also ended up being funded by the billionaire Koch brothers and then was also reinforced by Fox News. So it's a very, it's grassroots, but it's also like a lot of billionaires are getting on, on, on board with it. Um, so it was a reaction to the GFC because people were becoming more interested in economic issues rather than social issues, but it also represented a fracturing of the Christian right because they were so if you so often used to working together on the same issues that they were um, unsure whether they should support the Tea Party, oh, excuse me, the Tea Party or not. Um, the Christians that did align with the Tea Party were given a name, the Tea Evangelicals, <laughs> by a, a senior <laughs> correspondent from uh, the Christian Broadcasting Network. His name was David Brody. Um, but other Christian leaders decided to distance themselves from all partisan politics, which included the Tea Party. Um, but it did have a big effect because following the midterm elections after Obama was elected in 2008, those midterm elections in 2010, the Republicans gained 63 set seats in the House of Representatives, which is the largest change since 1948. Um, however, it flipped again in 2012 where uh, Obama won against uh, Mitt Romney in the second presidential election uh, for Obama, and they won the, he won the majority in the popular vote and won by a landslide. So a very interesting way of splitting... Um, it's almost like you were talking about, uh, we were talking about the progressive line coming off the uh, liberal modernist line. It's almost a new line going to the Tea Party. Uh, I don't know what we would call that. We, we talked about the evangelical term being perhaps appropriated and coming into that idea of uh, a break off from the fundamentalist movement. Um, it did seem to set a standard of that. I mean, in 2009, Rick Warren in the same year said that the Christian right had uh, actually was dead. So it was a very obviously a time where the Christian right was so used to talk, walk, working together, and so used to actually working on the same issues that now something like the Tea Party has actually split them further again as a result of what happened in the culture. What are your th What are your thoughts on the Tea Party and how that influenced how we evangelise? Yeah, again, going with that Marsden definition, I think it could actually be either a splitting off or it could actually be another wave of fundamentalism okay. that's coming to prominence. Remember, we've talked about the waves of fundamentalism mm. coming back and forward. Mm. So the Jerry Falwell stuff is dead, which is by 2008. That's yep, 2008, 2009. Yeah, yeah. But now there's this new conservative political movement that's emerged and and there's going to be some evangelicals who get angry about the same issues that that political expression has and so they jump onto that bandwagon and other evangelicals say we're going to continue to preach the gospel and we're not going to get political like that um, again the progressive movements kind of come off the the liberal um, strand however another way of looking at it is it's it's sort of like the evangelicals who are more left-leaning and things like the Tea Party are coming along and now going, we want to respond against that by jumping into that more left-wing way of seeing things. So to to look at it, it's really important to look for the evangelicals who continue to promote the gospel in the midst of all those different uh, impulses, I think. Mm. Well, it's funny that um, the, the Rick Santelli guy who actually was talking about it, if, if I, he was, he's uh, very persuasive because he's, he's standing there 
on the squawk box yelling on the on the floor of the the mercantile exchange in Chicago and there's all people going yeah yeah we agree with you and all these kind of stuff so mm. um, really got the mob behind him which is interesting how that created a movement straight away so um, someone should have run out of the room yelling out the British are coming, the yeah. British are coming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean if he had a TikTok he'd be doing good numbers because he he was he was very persuasive um, it's probably a good point to wrap up the episode I think um, we could we could go into the declining um, numbers in church attendance but maybe we'll leave that for for next episode. Where do we go from here, guys? Because that's that's probably the next question. Um, we've got a new emerging strands of perhaps that evangelical line. Where, do, how does that affect our evangelism, and where do we go from? I think a good summary point from me, and I'd love to hear what you think too, uh, guys. But my thought is, if the Evangelion, the good news, is about what Jesus is uh, putting forward in Mark chapter one, verses fourteen and following, that he has come to bring in the kingdom of heaven. The first is that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven first and everything else second. And secondly, uh, if Jesus' call on our response is to believe and repent, repent of our sins and to believe the good news, then we've got to be really careful when these different strands of Protestantism actually change the good news. So we talked today about nonviolent atonement. That changes the good news. That That impulse of universalism that says that there is no hell and we you know all faiths are all equal and all that kind of stuff that changes the good news and so what i love about this podcast is we're talking about continuing to be evangelicals in the sense not not just to have a brand or a title but to hold on to the euangelion the good news and to to stay true to what the bible says about what jesus did on the cross and i think the cross of christ is central to our faith i think the atonement is a central doctrine and I want to just encourage our listeners and our viewers to continue to to come back to God's word and to um, test every new idea with scripture. So if you hear something on a podcast or if you hear some person saying something that sounds a bit fundamentalist or a bit progressive or, or even calls themselves an evangelical but says something that's different to what the scriptures say, uh, I think I think it's good to test everything with scripture so that... Also, the other thing to remember is not to be arrogant and not mm. to be thinking that we are going to be the judge and jury of God and, and judging his word and judging it by the standards of our cultural moment, but by being humble. And I love it that when Jesus was in the garden and he was about to go to the cross, he says, you know, if there's any other way you know, other than me going to the cross, I, you know, God, you are God, and, but not my will but yours. Mm. And I think that's a really beautiful phrase, not my will but yours. God and so to trust that God is good and he's good all the time uh, I just wanted to finish my comment today is one of my um, really good evangelical friends is a, a, a guy who played rugby league for Cronulla Sutherland Sharks and we used to do a bible study together uh, I'm also a chaplain of the Sharks as well as being a pastor and we'd do a bible study with some of the players and what I loved about that bible study is every bible study we'd start with Jason saying God is good and then we'd say all the time and after we said all the time Jason would say God is good and it was a really good reminder that as you come to scriptures that the, the God who, who wrote the, who inspired the word of God through his Holy Spirit is good and so we need to trust that so uh, I think it's really encouraging to think let's keep evangelizing let's keep sharing the euangelion let's keep sharing that good news which is that ancient message and even though there's all these social pressures on us to modify aspects of it let's Let's stick to the reformed evangelical uh, doctrines that we we uh, we need to continue to promote. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think so. Any final words, Tim? 
I think that was a really good wrap up. Excellent. I'll leave it with that. Excellent. Let's <laughs> leave it with that. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Really enjoyed thank you, Joel. Episode. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone that was listening and or watching. Uh, you can get in touch and get talking about the things that we have been talking about on this particular podcast or any of the other podcasts that you might like listening to, which you may have hopefully subscribed to if you, if you so wish. Um, you can email me any questions you have at joel at shockabsorber.com.au. You can subscribe to our email newsletter on our website, which is shockabsorber.com.au. Uh, there will be a Discord link in the show notes where you continue to chat throughout the week if you so wish. And also, if you feel like it, check out the Soul Revival shop, which is soulrevival.shop, where all our proceeds go to our Indigenous ministry partners. Having said that, again, thank you very much, guys. And Thanks, Joel. One way. One way. One way.